I love that video that was done by the Fuller Youth Institute. You know, Fuller did this nationwide study of youth groups all over the country to try to discern what is it that's helping some churches grow younger while so many other churches are aging. And they just showed this as just a snapshot. Did you catch what that 13-year-old girl had to say in the video? I love it. She said, when you're 13 and everyone is telling you what to do, but then this one person comes into your life. Like, here's what you have to say. That melted my heart. She could have said anything after that, and I would have heard her. If we want our young people to hear the good news of God's love that we find in Jesus Christ, we first have to begin by listening to them. Youth leaders often tell us that our children spell love, T-I-M-E, by spending time with them. Our young people love to to spend time with older adults, to have someone show an intentional interest in them, to ask them questions. Yes, discipleship is not so much about doling advice or, or trying to teach someone, but as it is to listen to them, to hear what they're thinking and what they believe and, and what they feel, and then help them discern through a series of questions what God has already begun to do in their life. Yes, discipleship begins by listening meeting people where they are, understanding and letting them know that they are loved, and then they are open to the good news of God's love for them. I love what the teenager said near the end of the video. She said, we need to see people as people. Don't come with all the answers and all the help. Have a conversation with someone and treat them as the royalty that they are. Our Old Testament text that Clint read just a moment ago, he's moved, he was there and now he's here. (laughs) Our Old Testament text that Clint read just a moment ago is the beautiful story of creation, Genesis chapter 1. And as you read the whole chapter, you'll see that, well, when God creates, he he speaks and then then it happens and he says it's good. But when he creates us, he's very intentional that we would be created in the very image of God, both male and female, young and old, we're all created in the very image of God. When God looks at all of us, he says that we are very good at the very beginning of creation. For we're created in his image. We are called to, to, to point others to him in the way that we live, in the way that we love. Yes, God loves all of us, and we are called to do the same. Kara Powell, Jake Mulder, and Brad Griffin, uh, after spending years interviewing all of these youth groups around the country, uh, wrote a great new book called Growing Young. And in one of their chapters, they highlight that warm is the new cool among young people today. Specifically, uh, they write, for teenagers and emerging adults, depth of relationship opens the door to deeper exploration of belief. First relationship, then formation. First belonging, then belief. Faith, after all, is not just passed down, it's passed around. Belonging leads to believing. The first thing we need to do in order to make our church feel like it's a a warm church is to let our young people know that they belong, that they have a a seat at the table with all of us, that we are really interested in what God is doing in their life, and we want them to to reach their God-given potential as the next generation for the kingdom of Christ. As churches that are warm and welcoming to youth feel more like a family than an institution, and they're considered cool by young people today. So what is the key to making sure that we, as First Presbyterian Church, are always warm and welcoming to our young people today? To find out how we can foster a warm community, please turn in your Red Pew Bibles to Acts chapter 2. 
Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. It may be found on page 1159 of your Red Pew Bible. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for this time we have to, well, to be still, to know that you are God. Lord, we know that your word does not return void, but it, it accomplishes all that it's sent out to do. So Lord, we thank you for Luke, who did a thorough study of the church and has written a, an orderly account of the acts of the apostles. God, we pray that as we read that account today, as we read these few verses, that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. Listen to the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Isn't that amazing? Uh, Every day, new people were coming to faith in Christ in that first century church in Jerusalem. Now, this brief description that we have, this summary statement of that first century church in Jerusalem, is preceded by the description Luke gives of that first Pentecost Sunday, when Peter stands up among all the people who were gathered there in Jerusalem uh, to celebrate uh, Pentecost and and he stands there and he, and he begins to explain to, to everyone why the disciples are able to speak in various tongues. And he begins to preach boldly the, the good news of God's love that we find in Jesus Christ. And we're told that 3,000 people came to faith in Christ that day. So the church was growing exponentially in that early days of the first century church. For the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Isn't that amazing? Did you know that our church is, is actually growing? Not by a lot, but, but we are growing a little bit. You know, we, we had 48 people join our, our church last year. And in fact, we have a new members class today. I understand we may have 10 or 12 people join as, uh, as well today, which is a great thing. Of course, while it's, it's great to add 48 people to our roles uh, last year, we, we aren't really growing anything like the first century church where 3,000 people came to faith in Christ in one day and people were coming to faith in Christ every day. What was the key to their rapid, exponential growth? 
Clearly, the Holy Spirit was at work, but what were the tools that the Holy Spirit used to grow his church in those early days? Let's look again at Acts 2, verse 42 in our text. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the Greek word for fellowship here in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is koinonia. It can uh, be translated as fellowship, communion, joint participation, even partnership. It's a term that could be used to speak of a business partnership where, where two people are, are bought in and sharing one another's uh, assets together financially and, and sharing resources. That's what the earliest church did as we read about them. For they held everything in common and as anyone had a need, people would sell their possessions to help meet that need, to help minister to one another's needs. So there wasn't a needy person among them. Yes, the first century church was known for their, for their generosity. And as I read these verses, I, I think about how the first century grew and gave so sacrificially. I believe this sacrificial generosity was driven by the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread at this table, and ultimately their prayers together as one fellowship. Let's look at those specific tools exactly that the Holy Spirit used, beginning with the apostles' teaching. Now, what was the, the emphasis of the apostles' teaching? Was it the moral imperatives that we find in the Sermon on the Mount, like love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you? Well, perhaps, but as, well, as transformative, as convicting as the Sermon on the Mount can be, I don't think it was the moral imperatives of the Sermon on the Mount because... Well, the Sermon on the Mount only appears in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. It doesn't appear in Mark or, or in John. And, and well, the Apostle Paul never mentions the Sermon on the Mount throughout his many letters. Yes, the Sermon on the Mount is important, but I don't think that was the focus of the Apostles' teaching. What was the focus of the Apostles' teaching? Was it the great I Am statements that we find in the Gospel of John where where Jesus says these powerful, insightful statements like, I am the good shepherd, or I am the bread of life, or I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Was that the emphasis of the apostles' teachings, the, the I am statements of, of Jesus? Well, those I am statements, as great as they are, only appear in the Gospel of John. I, I don't think that was the emphasis of the apostles' teaching. What was the focus of the apostles' teaching? Well, if we were to take all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and if you were to outline each one of them, just kind of talking about the headings and how they begin, you know, Matthew begins with his genealogy, and of course Luke begins with the story of Jesus' birth, and Mark launches right into Jesus' ministry, and John begins at the very beginning of time, with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word's with God, and the Word was God. If you took each four Gospels, each one of the four Gospels, and you just kind of outlined their basic structure and format, you would notice a consistent pattern in all four Gospels, specifically for example, the Gospel of Matthew has 28 chapters. The final eight chapters of Matthew's Gospel are dedicated, focused on the final week of Jesus' ministry in the city of Jerusalem. And so over 25% of Matthew's Gospel is focused on the final week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. 
37% of Mark's gospel is dedicated to the final week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. 25% of Luke's gospel is focused on the final week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. And 47% of John's gospel is focused on that final week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. Jesus' public ministry lasted three years. Yet all four Gospels give a disproportionate amount of focus to that final week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. As we prepare to remember and celebrate that final week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, which begins with Palm Sunday next Sunday, and all of Holy Week with Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. As I understand it, our choir has an an amazing... uh, uh, scheduled plan for Good Friday, you will not want to miss that uh, service of diminishing lights in order to experience what Jesus really did for us when he died on the cross. It'll be very moving music. You'll want to be here on Good Friday. Yes, as we begin to enter into Holy Week, starting with next Sunday on Palm Sunday, we can see that on that final week in Jerusalem, Jesus was arrested, crucified, and raised from the dead. And that was the focus of the apostles' teaching. We actually see this in the sermon that Peter preached on that first Pentecost Sunday in Acts 2, verses 22 to 24, where Peter stands up among all the assembly and says, Men of Israel, hear these words of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Yes, the focus of the apostles' teaching was on the death and resurrection of Jesus. For it's through Christ's death on a cross that our sins are ultimately atoned for. And it's through his resurrection that we know that, that the victory over both sin and death has ultimately been won in him. It's the focus of all of the apostles' teaching was on the death and resurrection of Jesus. We see this in Paul's letter, specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. The apostle Paul reminds the church in Corinth what he taught them. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not me, but the grace of God that is with me." The apostles emphasized this gospel of grace, God's unmerited favor towards us. Because in this gospel of grace, ultimately we see just how much God loves us. The gospel of grace helps us see that well, Jesus didn't come to die for the righteous. He came to die for the unrighteous. 
which is all of us here today. For God demonstrates his great love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we talked about last week in our sermon, right before Jesus is crucified in Jerusalem, Jesus clarifies in Matthew 22, what are the two most important commandments? The first most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we have to admit that, well, that none of us love God all of the, with all of our heart all of the time, and love of, none of us love our neighbors as ourselves all of the time. Yes, by lifting up these two commandments, we begin to see that they're not only sins that we commit, but sins of omission. For when we fail to love God or when we fail to love our neighbor, we are in fact sinning, falling short of God's plan and glory. And so we have to admit that we are in need of a Savior. Yes, these two commandments didn't make it any easier to follow God's law. They simply clarified what is most important and helped us see our need for a Savior. But there was one who was able to love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. There was one who was able to love his neighbor as himself by doing for them what they could never do for themselves. Yes, Jesus lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father by obeying the moral law in its entirety and then fulfilling the sacrificial requirements of the law by dying as the perfect sacrifice on a cross for our sins. Through that sacrifice... Our sins are atoned for. And that was the focus of the apostles' teaching. As they would focus on their teaching about God's love for us that we find at the cross of Christ, eventually, it would bring them to this table. We are nourished by that love. For we come to this table and we, we gather, and as Jesus told us, we, we break bread and we remember that Christ's body was broken and, and given for us as a sign of his great love for us. That his blood was shed for us so that our sins might be atoned for. It's at this table we were reminded again of, of God's great love. The, the focus of the apostles' teaching was the, was the cross of Christ. As, as Paul writes in his letter to the church in Corinth, that while I was with you, I claimed to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. At the cross, we see how much God loves us. And at this table, we are nourished by that love. It's the earliest church focused on the disciples' teaching, the apostles' teaching, and they gathered around the, the Lord's table so they might be nourished by that love. And ultimately, as, they, as God's love would flow through them to each other, they would fervently pray for each other, listening to one another's concerns as they built their fellowship centered around the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread. And as they prayed for one another, they would show their love and respect for one another. They would begin to experience... God's love through each other, carefully listening, interceding for one another, knowing that God hears us as we come together in two or more, gather together in his name. Christ promises to be there. And so they would cry out to God to help each other, to be bolstered by his loving presence. Yes, the koinonia, the fellowship of the earliest church was dedicated to the apostles' teaching. It was focused on the cross of Christ. It was nourished daily as they came together to break bread at this table. And finally, yes, it was, it was bolstered by their prayers for each other. For they would fellowship, they would listen and pray for each other. They would encourage each other. 
Like the women in our video prayed for the young teenage girl, after having listened to her concerns and her anxieties and her thoughts, she would pray for her regularly, committing, not just when they're together, but daily. What young person are you praying for today? Who are you praying that they might come to know and grow in their knowledge of God's love for them today? For we know from Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, the workers labor in vain. We've got to come to Lord first and talk to God about people before we begin to talk to people about God. Who are you praying for? They might come to know and grow in the knowledge of God's love for them. You know, as I shared a moment ago, by God's grace, our church uh, grew numerically last year, not by a lot, because, you know, as much as we added 48 people, people died. Uh, Some people moved out of town. I mean, it's hard to have a net gain every year as a church. I wish people would stop dying. It would really help the numbers. We're all growing. We are growing, fortunately, but we're also all growing older. As we've done this three-year study of our entire church, we've discovered clearly that well, that our, we have an aging congregation. 72% of our membership is over 55. And so we began to study and find out what are the needs of our different ministries. And it became clear that we've got to make some significant investments in our facilities if we hope to continue to grow and reaching the next generation for the kingdom of Christ. Specifically, you know, our children's wing needs to be more secure, more kid-friendly with an indoor preschool play space, as many churches have today, and, and an expanded outdoor playground. where We actually have some play equipment used for elementary and designed for elementary age kids. We actually have no play equipment in this entire campus for elementary age kids. We need to create that. We're also aware that we do have an older congregation. We need to make our, our church more handicap accessible by, by having a ramp at the north door and making it easier for people to come into the sanctuary. And after meeting with our youth and and inviting them to come to the table of leadership and really listening to what they have to say, it was very clear to us that they need a larger youth house that doesn't have the long list of uh, repair expenses that our old house has that's simply too small to, to minister to the number of kids who are coming. Yes, they need a larger youth house that might be used to reach all of the youth within our community. Notice in our text, as it described that first century fellowship, that koinonia, they didn't just meet in the temple, did they? They met in homes. There's something about walking into a home, or at least a a building that looks like a home, it feels very comfortable. And as we listened to the youth in our church, we heard very clearly that that their friends, their de-churched and their unchurched friends are are more susceptible, more likely to, to walk into a into a house that looks like a fraternity house rather than into this neo-Gothic style building. As beautiful as I think it is, but I grew up in the church. I love old church buildings. But if you didn't grow up in the church, it can be a little intimidating. But a youth house that looks like a fraternity house is much easier for that de-churched and unchurched kid to come in, to come in and to fellowship, to have koinonia, where they can listen to one another and and hear the good news of God's love for each other and pray and, and fellowship together. Now, this morning, you may have noticed that, once again, you have a pledge card in your... And we realize that some of you, this may be your second pledge card, and, and it, but not everybody was here last Sunday, so we just want to make sure that everyone has a card in advance so they might pray about what God may be calling them to give, to commit to this Grow Across Generation campaign. And if you've already got one, feel free to give it to a friend, a member who did not come last week. That'll be fine. But you have one, and I would encourage you to begin to pray about what God is calling each one of us to give. It's been great as, you know, many of our leaders, uh, our, our elders and some of our deacons, some of our trustees and our staff and all of our pastors have 
already made a, a prior commitment, a, an early advanced commitment to this campaign. It's been great to see how God has blessed that coming together. And, and as I shared last week, you know, at this uh, point, we actually have 3.7 million in pledges on a goal of 5.5 million. We're two-thirds of the way there. We just need everyone else to do their part, to, to help us get to that 1.8 million that is needed left over. If everyone will perfectly do their part. I know that God will guide each one of us to give what God is calling us to give. I don't know what that number is for you. God does. But I know as my wife and I have prayed about this, we've realized that God is calling us to to give more than we've ever given to a capital campaign, three times more than we've ever given to a capital campaign before, because we believe so much in the importance of investing in the next generation for the kingdom of Christ. For as Jesus explains in the Gospel of Matthew, specifically in that Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we give to a campaign like this one, we make an eternal investment in the kingdom of God. And God is able to take what we give and he's able to multiply it to to minister to so many, many more. Not just to our kids who are already here, but the, the kids who are yet to come, the kids who are yet to be born. As we invest in this facility, as we invest in our our youth and our children, we can see that God is going to, to bring a harvest that is beyond even what we can imagine. For we know that as we give, God takes it and he He uses it to minister to so many, 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 many more. It's been amazing as I've talked to different couples and families and individuals as they've made an advanced commitment to this campaign. It's been amazing to just hear the testimonies of people as they've given sacrificially, generously, some giving three times, some giving ten times more than they've ever given to a capital campaign before because they believe so much in the importance of reaching the next generation for the kingdom of Christ. Next Sunday, we will all have an opportunity to make an eternal investment in the next generation and for the kingdom of Christ. This is a historic opportunity in the life of our church to to make a significant investment in our children's wing, in our youth facilities, and of course to to make sure that our church is more handicap accessible. As I think about this investment, as I think about it from an eternal perspective, I can't wait until I get to heaven one day and I'm going to meet young children who came to faith in Christ through this facility. As they met here and they gathered here and they heard the the good news of God's love for them. This is a legacy that will go well beyond our time here on this earth. And of course, as you know, the primary goal of this campaign is actually not the 5.5 million. The primary goal is 100% participation, that we all do our part, that we prayerfully discern. We want people to give out of revelation, not just reason. We really want people, as Joe Morris encouraged me a few weeks ago, to encourage everyone to pray and even fast about what God is calling you to give. That's why we're giving these cards in advance, two weeks in advance. We want to make sure that everybody has one of these. As you look at this card, you can see that there's different levels of giving, and we're going to need people at every level of gifts. And you may initially look at this level and go, wow, there's no way I could possibly do such a high level. But what if you took one of those numbers and you divide it by 36, for this campaign is for 36 months or three years. For instance, if you took $10,000 in an example, and you divide that by 36, well, that's $278 a month. If you divide 278 by 30, a typical month has 30 days in it, that's about $9 a day. I know couples who will easily spend 
$9 a day on coffee when they go to Starbucks together. What is God calling you to sacrifice? What is God calling you to give? Prayerfully spend some time this week praying. So as we come together on Palm Sunday, next Sunday, we can all make our commitment, our eternal investment in the work of God's kingdom in this facility. If everyone will do their part and ask God, Lord, what do you want me to sacrifice? What do you want me to give? In gratitude for your great sacrifice to me. I believe that we will easily reach our number. In fact, I believe we will have what we saw in Exodus chapter 35 happen, that as they were building the tabernacle, the people were overwhelmed and overjoyed with the opportunity to give, that that they kept giving supplies and giving and giving, and finally Moses had to say, stop, we've got too much stuff. And what a great problem that would be for us to have. For as I look at the brief snapshot of the first century church, I can see that one of the things that marked it, one of the things that made it so appealing and attractive to so many was that they were sacrificial in their giving. They were generous. For as anyone had need, they would sell whatever they needed in order to help meet that need. So there was no needy person among them. That is a, a great sign and wonder in our current consumerist culture today. When that happens, people take notice and want to know why. And then we can tell them it's because God has been so generous to us. If we want to have a church that's growing both numerically and growing younger, a church that is making a deep impact for the cause of Christ, I believe we need to have the kind of koinonia, the kind of fellowship that the first century church had. In gratitude for all that God has already done for us, we need to dedicate ourselves daily to the apostles' teaching with an emphasis on the teaching, on the focus on the cross of Christ and God's love for us there. We need to gather around this table regularly so we might be nourished by that love. And we need to listen to one another attentively, sharing all of our lives together so that we might earnestly pray for each other, knowing that unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for your amazing, unconditional, sacrificial love that we see at the cross of Christ. Lord, in gratitude for your great love, I pray that we might spend this next week praying about what you're calling us to commit, to dedicate, to give as a part of this Grow Across Generation campaign. This wonderful opportunity we have to make an an eternal investment in this facility so that it might be used to help bring many, many more young people to faith in Christ. so They might join us in the kingdom of heaven someday. Oh God, I thank you for the ministry that's already happening Thank you for our youth leaders and our children's leaders and all those who are helping minister to that next generation. Pray, Lord, that we might have a facility that also demonstrates our commitment, our value in reaching the next generation for the kingdom of Christ. I pray that each one of us would take the time we need each and every day to gather around your teaching by reading the words of the apostles that are written for us in the New Testament. I pray that we would also, as we're about to do today, to gather at this table with open and broken and contrite hearts, humbly thanking you for your great love for us, and that we might listen to one another in such a way that we might know each other's concerns and pray for each other, that we might let young people know that they are someone who will be loved here, that this church really is a family, not an institution, and we want them to to reach their God-given abilities. So Lord, help us to shepherd and guide those hearts as we listen and pray for them daily. We pray this